This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You can't expect to do better unless you know better. Asian American history, it's an integral part of American history. It is impossible to understand your present unless you know how you got here. It's about building empathy, understanding who we are as Americans collectively, both for Asian Americans and non-Asians, because it's just necessary to understanding one another. I'm Jennifer Gong Gershowitz, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Representative Jennifer Gong-Gershowitz, who serves as the state representative for the 17th District in Illinois' General Assembly, where she served since 2019. Jennifer's many things. She's a mom. She's a lawyer. She's an advocate. But what brought her to our radar was the passage of the Asian American History Curriculum Bill that's going to have Asian American history taught in schools in Illinois. First of its kind in this country, and long overdue, because I didn't learn about Asian American history growing up. Sharon, what about you? No, I didn't. Definitely not in school. And that's ironic because I grew up going to school in the middle of Chinatown. And that was never part of our formal curriculum. We would learn about holidays and cultural events, and people would obviously come in and do show and tell about their own families, but it was never a formal thing in our classroom. And what was interesting about talking to Jen today was that her own family was impacted by the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And it's something that I think many of us who are second or third generation in the U.S. today probably have a story like that. Like our grandparents or our great-grandparents immigrated here maybe through alternate means or under fake papers like my own grandfather did. And mm -hmm. it's really interesting to have now be on the other side of it, right? Like to be able to actually to speak with someone who's impacting policy so that these stories can be told more publicly and that it's not just about our culture anymore, but it's all part of how American history was shaped to be what it is today. So it was really great to talk to her about that. Yeah. And what's equally important is it's not just about educating Asian Americans. It's about educating all Americans on the history of this country and the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know? And, uh, because I th otherwise we're prone to make the mistakes of the past. A lot of escaping the model minority myth to the recent scapegoating in the last couple of years. And I think the silver lining to a lot of the shit that's always been happening, but kind of the awakening to the shit that's been going on has been the appetite to accept some of this change, to talk about curriculums and 
what's the root cause of the problems? What are the sort of things we can solve? And it's just super admirable to see someone like Jen just trying to make small systemic changes that kind of move the ball forward for other people for future generations. So she has such an interesting background, such an interesting approach. And we think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with our friend, the Honorable Jen. Representative Gong Gershowitz, or if I can call you Jen, it's so great to have you on the pod. Thank you so much for having me. And Jen is is perfectly fine. (laughs) The Honorable Jen. Understood. Honorable Jen. (laughs) Jen. Folks know about the work you've been doing, but I guess before we dive into that and your journey to get there, the question we're all wondering, and I'm sure you've gotten this question in your life, where are you from? Well, born and raised in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a rather storied, progressive, diverse community just outside of Chicago. And now I live in Glenview, which is a northern county suburb. outside of Chicago where I, I, I've raised my three boys and yeah, but I, I'm pretty much, I, I'm a homegrown Illinoisan. And Jen, I don't know if you get this question a lot, but where are you really from? I was, <laughs> when, when you said, where are you from? I had that initial visceral reaction um, <laughs> that I have, I have had my entire life where part of my brain says, what do you mean? What are you getting yeah, at? Yeah. Um, right. So, and I thought how interesting that you would lead with that question because I thought like a lot of minorities, I've been asked that question my whole life. What are you is, right. is yeah. the yeah. most frequent. And you have this momentary pause where you have a decision to make, right? Are you going to correct, which comes off as luxury are you going to answer the question that they're really asking? Or are you going to say, Glenview? And, 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 so, and, and there's that moment of, of you know, where you realize that for me as a woman, and especially as a racial minority, I've learned that in my life, you don't succeed by alienating people with especially people with power and authority, right? So Mm. you feel as though it's your job to meet that person where they are and make them comfortable. And so despite the fact that the question is one that would, if if you asked uh, a white person, where are you from? They might say San Francisco, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when I'm with my dad, who is of Chinese descent, but born in Portland, Oregon. English is his first language. I would often get, does your dad speak English? Mm. Where are you from? What are Mm -hmm. you? And the what are you in particular is a question that I would get often, less so now as an adult, I think because I'm biracial. I want to ask a question about that. Uh, This is something I've been, so both Sharon and I have our interracial marriages, right? Not to each other, (laughs) but we have biracial kids. And something, I was actually talking to my wife about this, who's Chinese American. She wasn't even familiar, and through this podcast, I've been familiar, become familiar with the concept of passing. Do you ever feel that you're more Asian passing or do Chinese people or Chinese Americans know 
that you're half white? That has changed throughout my life. Mm -hmm. So when I was mm -hmm. younger, I looked much more Asian. If you see mm -hmm. pictures of me as a baby, pictures of me um, as a child, and as I got older, I became acutely aware that I was perceived, I think, externally, oftentimes as white, and yet early on in my life became acutely aware of my my Asian-ness, my, my difference. And so I, you know, I decided early in my life that I was going to have to choose. And that was not something that I sought, but it was foisted upon me because at the time that I grew up, you were not allowed to check multiple boxes. Well, it's like usually you, W, B, and O, right? You, you, you were, you, you, you would say race, yeah. check one. And I will never forget the moment. And I, I remember the room. I remember sitting in the classroom. I think it was some standardized test. And you fill out the bubbles. And for those of your listeners who are too young to remember, when I was growing up, <laughs> yeah. you had these things called number two pencils and you filled yep. in a Scantron sheet. And I had to check race. And I looked at this piece of paper and I was being asked to choose. And I felt very much choosing one parent over the other was almost a betrayal. Mm -hmm. And I felt absolutely, well, I, I, think I, I, I think I felt confused and a little angry that I was being asked to choose. How old were you when you're filling out that form with the number two pencil? I was probably middle school, high school, some, oh, somewhere yeah. in there, old enough to be very conscious that I was being asked to choose a mm -hmm. racial identity. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, race consciousness is not something that you're born understanding, it's learned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom is just my mom. My mother is white. My dad is is Chinese American, but they they're just mom and dad. Yeah. And I grew up in a community where lots of people look different. My best friend in elementary school uh, was African American. None of us looked like one another. My mom looks different from my dad. And but at some point, and I I couldn't tell you when, you become very conscious that externally there are certain stereotypes and characteristics associated with people based on how they look. And it, and then it, it dawns on you that people might be ascribing those stereotypes to you or your family member. And that is something that is learned. And it was not until this moment in in school where I had to fill out a bubble and I asked the teacher, well, what do I do? Because I can't pick one. I am I am half Chinese and I'm half Irish. What do I do? And she said, well, just fill out other, <laughs> which was, yeah. I, I mean, I was literally otherized. And I had, I, I think, to be honest, very mixed emotions about that. And I think I felt somewhat defiant. And I remember sitting there and thinking nothing about what I had learned through either my own life experience or certainly through formal education taught me that somebody who is half white is white, is, is the way whiteness is, is often defined in our, in our society. So I sat down and I, I remember circling Asian. Hmm. And and that was I, because, but that was the external world requiring me to make a choice. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. I want to ask a question about that time of your life, though, Jennifer, because yeah, obviously your work and the reason we're talking is the work that you've done. But back then, and it's around Asian history, Asian American history, and education. Back then, 
the moment leading up to filling out that form, other than the heritage explainers we all get in our kitchens with our grandparents, right? What was your exposure to what Asian American history, even the concept of Asian American, like, did that exist for you back then as you walk in to fill in that form? Like, what was taught? What was seen in the media? Like, uh, what was, was it just a paragraph in the history book? Like, what did you, it's funny because we talked to a guy who worked with John Lewis and he talks about Andrew Iden. He helped, he co-wrote March with John, with the late Congressman Lewis. And he talks about in the civil rights world, most Americans know five words or the five words are Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. And I feel like we, there's that with Asian Americans. For Indian people, it's like Gandhi, <laughs> done. <right? laughs> uh, and for, we literally, we know Phil Yu, the angry Asian man and Bruce Lee, right? What was the education of what Asian American was going into that moment, filling out that scantron? Non-existent, invisible. Really? I had absolutely no concept of Asian Americanness. Hmm. I knew my own cultural heritage. I knew my my family. My my grandmother was a prominent figure in my life. Like a lot of Chinese families, the the elders in the family really feature prominently in in your life and and she was very much my my grandfather died before I was born. My grandmother very much was the center of yeah. of our family life. And so I, I knew my my Chinese heritage and the only depictions of Asian people that I recall from my childhood were Kung Fu movies. And I, I couldn't relate to that at all. I knew my own family. I knew and of course could recognize the differences uh, between my my grandparents on my my dad's side and and on my mom's side but that's just your family in terms of how i perceive myself or how i perceive my family in the larger context of american history i had no concept of where i fit or my family fit in the context of other asian american families mm-hmm. because i had no education around Asian American history. None. Were you the only Chinese American family in your commu- in your area and in your community? Or were yeah. there other families around you too? Well, if there were, I, I don't recall knowing any or being close to other Asian American families growing up. Oak Park, at least at that time, was diverse, but predominantly black and white. Not, yeah. I, did, I don't recall a lot of Asian American families, whether uh, they were Chinese American, South Asian. And, and so I, I, I felt very unique, I guess, in the sense that you know, there weren't other families, certainly no other mixed families that, sure. that yeah. I could identify with. You know, so I was really alone yeah. there, very much alone there. Very unique. What did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> I wanted to be a ballerina. <laughs> and in fact, very much pursued that with the same tenacity, I think, that I pursued other things in my life. I actually, I had the unique opportunity to guest appear with the Joffrey Ballet and their performance of, at the Auditorium wow. Theater growing up. That's amazing. And yeah. And so I was a classically trained dancer and 
really uh, had imagined that I would join the Joffrey Ballet in New York when I graduated from college. And so that is at least where I saw myself in, until I went off to college and discovered other things that were motivating and inspiring. What did mom and dad want you to be? Well, so here, my parents are, are amazing people, both born and raised on the West Coast. And in times not unsimilar to to what we're experiencing today. My parents came of age at a time of tremendous social change and were part of that. My mom was active in the women's movement. My dad was in the vanguard of the civil rights movement. They were both art majors at UCLA in the 60s. So they were very forward thinking. And, and my mother, I think, very much felt boxed in by what the expectations were of women when she grew up and wanted something different for me. I, th I love to tell this story because I think it's indicative of my mom's thinking growing up. When, when we would go to the store and go and, and look through the aisles at, at toys, the girls' toys were all Barbie dolls. And the Barbie dolls were one race. Blonde hair, the, blue eyes. Yeah, yeah. Right. blonde hair, blue yep. eyes. And my mother felt that, well, one, I mean, I'm, I'm half Chinese, so I was never going to fit that stereotypical mold, that model of what it meant to be beautiful, what it meant to, to aspire to this ideal Barbie doll. And so she wouldn't buy Barbie dolls for me. I was not allowed to. And I, she got me sunshine family dolls that literally <laughs> lived in a tree. Wow. <laughs> Now the the dolls didn't still even even the Sunshine Family dolls didn't look like me. They they looked like hippies and they lived in a tree, but they were still white. I don't recall having any biracial looking dolls or or certainly not Asian American looking dolls. No one that I could could I uh, completely identify with. But my parents very much wanted me to discover who. I was meant to be and encouraged a lot of independence and a lot of independent thinking. And, and so I was really lucky to have parents who I think believed in the power of discovering my own voice. So fast forward a little bit, you study journalism in undergrad, you go to law school. And I read or I heard somewhere like along the way, and I'm going through a little bit of this right now, um, with my own research on family history um, and heritage and immigration, but you start looking into that. And there's this moment where you start to understand this, the history of the Asian Exclusion Act, the laws that changed in the 50s, but reconciling that with your parents' journey in the 20s. Can you talk about that unpacking and that realization? Yeah. Most of these issues, at least in my generation, were not ones that people talked about much. So the journey is very much one that in many respects I had to come about as I became more aware of things at certain times in my life. And that's certainly true with respect to discovering my own family's immigration history. Growing up, it was not something that anyone in my family ever talked about. And I think in some ways, the experience of racism and exclusion very much caused my dad in some ways to disassociate with that cultural identity. And it left me a little bit wondering, well, why is that? What does that mean? And so it was not until I 
went to law school and I took an immigration law course and we studied the Chinese Exclusion Acts and challenged notions of race-based immigration laws through the lens of various statutes that had been passed. And I started asking questions about my own family's history. I knew that my grandparents had immigrated to the United States in the 1920s. I learned in law school that it was not until 1943 that the ban on uh, Chinese immigration had been lifted by the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Acts until 1943, and it, it just didn't add up. And it was also at that time that I had a cousin who was doing some research on on the family's history. And of course, at that point, my grandmother had passed. And my dad, being the youngest of five and had been very much shielded from a period in my grandparents' life and in the family's history where they faced discrimination and deportation under the Chinese Exclusion Acts, he couldn't really offer much um, mm-hmm, that would mm-hmm. have shed, shed any light on what my grandparents had gone through. So I actually traveled to Portland, Oregon where my dad grew up, and I met the only surviving relative of the civil rights attorney that had represented my family challenging the constitutionality of the Chinese Exclusion Acts for over 10 years. And I had a chance to talk to her and I and meet her. Wow. And that was an absolutely watershed moment for me as a human being, to understand that my own grandmother, who I idolized. She was a woman born before her time, brilliant and strong and wanted the world for me and could never have imagined uh, that her granddaughter would be sitting on on the floor of the Illinois House of Representatives. She, she was born at a time where all of those things would have been denied her, not only because she was Chinese American, but because she was a woman. And so there I was discovering this family history at a time when I was really exploring the rule of law and what it meant in the context of American history and that connection to my own studies about immigration law, about justice, about our own country's history of exclusion of Asian Americans, did I discover that this was incredibly relevant and part of my own family's story? Well, you said the story about how they challenged the constitutionality, but the way they got in was by saying you came in through Mexico. That's I right. thought that was that's I mean that's it, it's funny it's a great, yeah but it, it just shows the ludicrousness of, of the systems and what we have to do or what folks generations before us had to do just to get in and it, I think the unlock for me there was how systems have to change right there's only so much it's like the work of one can can be in a crowd or it can be dismantling or changing or adjusting systems because that's what you started to do career-wise with immigration, asylum, and trafficking law. like What was that approach? What was that for you? And why did you approach it that way? Well, I think as a lawyer, one of the things that, and, and frankly, one of the things that drew me to practicing law was the ability of the law to be a part of of changing systems. The law itself is, you know, our, our judiciary is very much part of 
the evolution on issues like immigration, women's rights. I mean, this was an opportunity for me through the law and through the power of representing unaccompanied immigrant children to advance notions of gender-based persecution. I think historically, it probably won't surprise either of you to know that the kinds of harms that happen to women have been very slow to yeah. be recognized mm-hmm. in the law, right? As Literally based on wording. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I mean, it, it, it takes challenging pre-existing notions of how we define certain legal terms to expand those definitions to recognize the kinds of harm that happen to women as constituting a violation of our human rights. And I was raised by a mother who very much recognized that the power of me as a woman to fully realize and have agency over my life depended on systems, depended on the rule of law, recognizing our equalness. And she fought for the Equal Rights Amendment throughout my early childhood. And I was in Washington with my mom for the Women's March, where we were celebrating a time when women had seen us reach the threshold of states necessary to amend the U.S. Constitution to include women. This was something that had been part of the backdrop of my my childhood. And for me, law was a tool through which to change systems. So when it comes to changing law, you recently did something pretty innovative about Asian American history in education. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you view that? Obviously, it's truly going to change what children learn, but we read a quote where you had said education is the best weapon. And I think I, as a parent, am really inspired by that notion because I think there is so much that just isn't brought up in the classroom and and so much that none of us know because we didn't live through it ourselves or because sometimes our ancestors that have don't even either don't want to talk about it because of the trauma or don't always pass down those histories to us. Yeah, I think there well, a lot of things. The TEACH Act is obviously incredibly personal to me as an Asian American and as someone who experienced the invisibility of Asian Americans in curriculum as a product of public education. I think people would assume that because I am Asian American that I would have had some education perhaps outside of a formal one on Asian American history, but that's absolutely the furthest thing um, from the truth. So both for Asian Americans and non-Asians, education is incredibly important. You can't expect to do better unless you know better. And Asian American history is part of, and it's an integral part of American history. And I always say it is impossible to understand your present unless you know how you got here. So it, it is fundamentally for me, TEACH, which is stands for Teaching Equitable Asian American History, is about building empathy. It's about developing a more comprehensive understanding of who we are as Americans collectively, because I, I think it's just necessary to understanding one another. And fundamentally, education 
um, should be about developing a comprehensive understanding so you have the tools necessary to understand the world around you and and all of the the people in it. And of course, we have such a, a rich and diverse history in the United States and understanding our complex history requires knowing it. I want to unpack a couple of things you said there. Like first, it's as a nation American, it's like for my parents, it was all about assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. My parents now still have this regret on the cultural things they didn't give my elder sister and I because the job was in Alabama to fit in. So the heritage play came in a little later in life. And my I can so empathize as just a parent, but immigrant parents doing the best they could. But the other thing was, yeah, it's about educating us, but it's about educating everyone else <laughs> to have this empathy. Otherwise, like just like I need to know more than the five words about civil rights, right? I need to know uh, there, there's things I need to understand. I have blind spots on. I, I guess a question I have, everyone's now talking about implementation. This is happening in your state, in, in the great state of Illinois, and it didn't happen in California first, right? And maybe other states are looking at this as a template. We, we live in polarized times, and people start to throw around words like mandates, and they get scared, and they get angry and they get divided. How? What's been the reception and the reaction to this, I guess? What's been the pushback? And, and then how do you counter that? Yeah. So I feel incredibly fortunate that in Illinois, this did not go sideways into a polarized debate. The TEACH Act received wide bipartisan majority support passing mm-hmm. unanimously out of the Illinois Senate and with 108 out of 118 members of the House voting in favor of this bill. So at least here in Illinois, the conversation was about teaching history. Mm -hmm. And teaching history comprehensively means teaching all of it, Mm -hmm. the good, the bad, so that we can start conversations that are necessary and, and important. And frankly, just so you can understand and have a comprehensive view of the American mosaic, which Mm. is inclusive of Asian Americans and Asian American history. So that's the conversation that we had, not only in, in committee, but on the floor and behind the scenes. I had colleagues on both sides of the aisle come and talk to me about how much they learned Mm -hmm. just from the discussion of this particular bill. Mm -hmm. And yes, there, to the extent that there was pushback, it was around just mandates in general. Mm -hmm. I certainly Mm -hmm. have some Mm -hmm. colleagues that just oppose any school mandate, but the vast majority said, you know what, Um, in the 202 year history of the General Assembly, we have yet to see an organic movement that has resulted in Asian American history being taught in our classrooms. And so it's our responsibility to lead on this issue and to ensure that we include Asian American history in the teaching of our shared American history. And so that really was the focus of the conversation and to the extent that there were opponents over the issue of a mandate Mm -hmm. that was a minority of members for sure. That's that's so encouraging. I mean, I wonder if it was at the right time, the right moment, the silver lining of the terrible moments that we, we experienced in the past year and a half made people more receptive to, oh, there is an issue. 
we need to solve it. Oh, this could be a great solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've said it is incredibly important to remind people that we're talking about American history when we talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Asian mm-hmm. American history. Mm-hmm. Right. There, I think I, I heard one comment in talking to community members about the bill, one of the most active and vocal members of of my community were our students, young people, Mm -hmm. young people who, many of whom are are not yet old enough to vote, who felt so passionately about this bill, not just Asian American students. I, I read in in my committee presentation on this bill in the House Education Curriculum Policy Committee, a letter from a young woman at Nutra High School who happens to be Jewish, who said, I've learned nothing about Asian American history. And I feel as though I've been robbed of understanding and I have something missing in my education. This is something that I need that I want. And it was such a beautiful letter that I I chose to read it into the record because Mm. the values expressed by young people who supported this bill were really overwhelming. And they were very much part of the effort to pass this legislation Um, because this is, you know, ultimately more about them and their future. Absolutely. I mean, a part of me was like, wants to say, is this going to be on the test? But like, when, do, <laughs> when, when, when will kids start to learn things? Or is that left up now to the educators and the education system in Illinois to figure out implementation and textbooks and documentaries to watch? When is it going to start to hit at what age group and what materials and what topics and themes? Yeah. So implementation is the most critical piece of this, right? Ensuring that the curriculum itself is comprehensive and inclusive. Asian Americans are, as you all know, not a monolith. Yeah. Not a monolith. Our diversity is our strength and it's also a challenge. And so it's really important to me and it's important to my colleague in the Senate. So Senator Ron Villivalum, who is the only Asian American in the Illinois Senate, he was the Senate sponsor of the bill spent a lot of time working with grassroots organizations who are very involved in the implementation of the bill to help build resources for the implementation of TEACH, which is required by the 2022 school year. So the bill requires a unit of Asian American history to be taught in elementary and high school beginning in the 2022-2023 school year. So that means we have, and this work has already begun, we have to ensure that we have guidelines and resources available to teachers that are age appropriate, depending on the school district's needs and what the decisions are made at the local level on what's to be included and and when. So that work is ongoing. We have working groups, teach working groups that are meeting throughout the state to advise and put together resources. And ultimately, the State Board of Education will be releasing guidelines along with resources. And then the work really begins at the local level, where it will be school boards and educators who can then look at the guidelines that will be released by the State Board of Education, look at the resources that have been developed and made available, and then uh, utilize those and tailor the the units of Asian American history to fit the needs of classrooms and their communities. And what's really important about that, and I think this doesn't get said enough, is that there are 
communities here, you know, in, in Illinois and around the country where there might be unique need for a particular school district. So for example, one of my colleagues reached out to me and she said, I have a very large Lao community, a refugee community in my district. Would it be possible to include some of that history in this curriculum? And I said, absolutely, of course. In fact, that conversation should be happening at your, your school board level so that as they implement the TEACH Act, they include a community that is visible in their school community. Right. It's so interesting because yeah. some of this is, it has to happen at the local level. I mean, and I have a, I have a five and a half year old and my wife's Chinese American, I'm Indian American. And it's not at the level of Indian and Chinese American history, but it's like we're so much more conscious of making sure that we're not just observing the big holidays like Chinese New Year and Diwali, but it's important that, hey, teacher, can I give you some some stuff? Do you mind looking at this? Do you have a curriculum for Chinese New Year's? Because it's my daughter seeing that all of her non-Asian friends are learning about these things and seeing these things. I just think you need involvement at all levels to make this happen. Um, Otherwise, it won't get adopted. Well, first of all, that's wonderful that you are doing that for your child. I didn't have that growing up. And I think it would have helped me feel less nervous. I think the natural tendency when you're growing up and when you're a kid, and then then you hit, you know, your 40s and and all of a sudden you're sort (laughs) of like- Self-actualization, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really good with where I am. It only takes 40 years to get there. It only takes 40 years to get get there, right? But but being young, you want to be like everybody else. You You want to fit in. in. Yeah. 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 There's this drive to fit in and you really suppress differences, I think. And I remember feeling that. I remember feeling- that especially when kids would bully or tease, I think my experience, probably not too dissimilar from other Asian American kids, is that you get ching-chonged. You get that that teasing that reminds you that you're different and mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. kind of want to disappear and blend in. So it it's really incumbent upon parents, I think, to bring some of those things into their children's lives exposing peers, making something that's important to your family familiar to others. So that sense of belonging, that sense of understanding is shared. And my husband talks about this a lot. My husband's Jewish and he was the only Jewish kid in his class growing up. And his mother, who was on the school board, had offered to his teachers to come in during Hanukkah and teach a little bit about Hanukkah and and light Mm -hmm. candles. And my husband said it made him feel accepted. It made him feel like there was something about his family's traditions that could be shared, which- Well, and that's being recognized. It's part of the curriculum, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so for me, in many ways, developing inclusive curriculum- is about ensuring that every child has that opportunity to be seen. Not every child has a parent who's going to come and provide that educational opportunity for every child. And of course, when it comes to teaching history, I just think gaps in our history leave gaps in our empathy, gaps in our knowledge, and gaps in our understanding of one another. And so it's our responsibility to ensure that we close gaps in understanding. Um, systemic change. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So Jen, if you were to go back to your younger self, 
the moment that you were filling out that Scantron with the number two pencil and having to choose a bubble to define your identity, what is some advice you'd give to yourself? I would probably have approached it similarly because I didn't have the option to, to, to color in both bubbles at the time. And I think as I have um, grown and come to understand more of what those identities mean and, and how they impact not only how you perceive yourself, but how others perceive you, um, I think... I very much identify as an Asian American woman, and that has been very empowering for me, I think, making that choice in some ways, although who you are isn't so much a choice, is is just what is, right? But internal and external identities are two different things in some respects. And for me, identifying as Asian American has been empowering, but I think that I I would go back and tell myself that it's okay to be kind to myself. I think part of me felt as though I was choosing between two integral parts of who I am and not to feel guilty or feel as though I was in any way not recognizing my mother. Because my mother, my heritage on both sides of my family are interwoven, interconnected, and undivided from me as a human being. And I think I would have maybe given myself permission not to feel as though I was being asked to make an existential choice between two things that are inseparable. Yeah. So great. So Jen, I I feel like we could talk forever, but I know you have very important work you have to do. So I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? An express, express speed round? Super speedy speed round. (laughs) (laughs) Jen, what is a film book or movie that has characters that you relate to? Oh, boy. To be honest with you, there haven't been a whole lot of movies or books that I could recall off the top of my head that I've felt are immediately identifiable. I was going to flip the question then. If you could pick a film book or movie that you think should be part of your new curriculum. (laughs) (laughs) The kids need to watch. Or maybe uh, as we all did in high school, we just rent the movie instead of reading the book. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny. I um, Tan is an author that I think does a beautiful job weaving Asian American stories in 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 a way that I think is is relatable. Um, and, And Joy Luck Club has been turned into a movie, although I would encourage people to read the book. Of course, Maxine Hong Kingston, The Woman Warrior, wonderful book. And then there have been some fabulous Asian American filmmakers recently. I think Minari is a wonderful film, one that is perhaps relatable more to maybe my dad's generation. Yeah, I'm third generation Chinese American, but it certainly depicts, I think, some of the challenges of the immigrant experience. And then when it comes down to looking for books where Asian American history is presented, there are certain uh, standards, right? So Strangers from a Different Shore, A History of Asian Americans by Ronald Takaki, Asian Americans, An Interpretive History by Su Cheng Chan, and The Making of Asian America, A History by Erica Lee. That book contains important contemporary updates um, to how Asian Americans have mobilized politically more recently. So those are nonfiction places to go. But for people who know nothing about Asian American history, a really good place to start is the PBS documentary, Asian Americans. It's available free of charge. Yeah. Just a really good high level overview. Yep. What is your favorite mom dish? 
Oh, wow. So I, I love to make Don Top. So for, for people who don't know what that is, that is Chinese egg tart, which is, it's very lightly sweet. And that was my treat growing up and the thing that I still love to make for my own family. And since your dad was Asian American, what's your favorite dad dish that he made for you? Well, he liked to make, well, he called it tomato beef. And I honestly have no idea if, <laughs> oh, there's, yeah. if there is a, there a is. Chinese word for that. Yeah. You never tell us the the name of the dish. You, you put it in English. In Indian like food, it's all like the weird Hindi name. <laughs> tomato <laughs> beef. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean it's it was tomato beef and I honestly have no idea yeah. if it yeah. has if it has a it Chinese does. name or what it, it is, it, but my dad fun, would make that. It would be fun kangal yolk fun, which is tomato beef rice. Like that's exactly what it's like a street food. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. but I so I didn't even know what the Cantonese my family you know, is Cantonese speaking, what what the Cantonese word for it would be, but my dad would just call it tomato beef. It's great. Jen, Jen, last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? I think for me, it means defining what it means to be a minority as it is defined by each generation. That's great. Jen, you are making waves for so many future generations all over, Asian and non-Asian, American And we are super, super happy to have had this conversation with you today. Thank you for your time. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, It's been a wonderful journey and it's been a thrill to be with you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.